1: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at Blue Nile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
2: Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Paul Haywood, the columnist and author, Glenn Moore of World Soccer. A divided nation finds a common cause. Can we? Will we? How? Why? Who will emerge as the hero? Only football and a successful England team can do this. History councils caution but this is England's best chance of winning a major tournament since 1966. The draw has been kind there's a winnable quarter-final against Ukraine in Rome on Saturday. The semi-final and final will be staged at Wembley. The football's coming home narrative is tiresome. But it does reflect the mood, doesn't it, Paul?
1: It does, Mike. I think, as we know, England was the maternity ward for football, but then the child ran off around the world and um, and explored the globe. So football's not coming home, even if England win it. The Euro 96 nostalgia is embedded in that song, although it's funny how dated it sounds now. So much has happened since Euro 96. The game has changed so much. England and Germany have had big clashes since then. And then, of course, the beauty of England's win over Germany for Gareth Southgate on a personal level was that it put that penalty shoot-out to bed. So although that song is kind of echoing round... Wembley, still, it does feel like just a quaint throwback. It's, It's not the pulse of the tournament anymore. It feels like a much more modern operation, a modern challenge for this England team, and that's refreshing.
2: Yeah, I think it's significant, isn't it, Glenn, that there's giddiness everywhere but St George's Park. I suppose what we're seeing here is a more forensic, dare I say, more grown up strategy, which is obviously built around pragmatic or prudent football.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I saw someone point out somewhere that Gareth... Southgate is notoriously the one who's supposed to have said that when they wanted Winston Churchill they got in Duncan Smith from Sven and Eriksson at half time against Brazil <laughs> uh, and then pointed out that actually Southgate appears to be being more in Duncan Smith than, 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 than Churchill there's not so much tub thumping it is very pragmatic well maybe the IDS isn't the ideal person but perhaps John Major but sensible pragmatic you know looking at the, the bigger picture and basically trying to keep their heads on the ground I, I think you're right the only place in England that won't be getting carried away by this is St George's Part where, yeah, you think if we go back to when we started covering England, I will suspect after the Germany game they will all come back to the bar at Bisham Abbey and got absolutely bladdered. Um, I suspect this time it was isotonic drinks and uh, reloading on the um, coach on the way back up the Staffordshire and then off to the rooms for a quiet night. And to concentrate on the next game. It's a very different environment. We have a young generation of footballers who are very different from the generation that we first grew up with in terms of the way they approach their lifestyles and the bigger picture. And also quite significantly, I don't think they have the hang-ups to sort of the pressure that, you know, to an extent we and the public generally put on that golden generation. I remember Michael Owen saying that it felt like a, sort of a lead weight putting the shirt on. and He always felt under pressure. If you made a mistake, you'd be crucified. I don't think the current generation have that. They're they're more confident. I mean, Sterling has had a lot of criticism. Just, you know, it just bounces off him. Shaw as well, and they seem to be able to cope with that. They seem much more sort of um, confident with themselves. And that team feeding among them, I think, has been a big factor. So there's a lot of experience on that side. Six of the team played in the World Cup semi final three years ago. Plus Henderson. So, although well, we feel it's a very young side, it's quite an experienced young
2: side. Yeah, as far as Gareth Southgate is concerned, Paul. Now, look, we've all had long experience of of dealing with England managers. You know, I go back to Ron Greenwood. How do you think he compares in terms of personality, perspective, tactical acumen, leadership quality, to the others that we've known in that job?
1: Well, I think he's the first England statesman manager, if you like. He's the first manager to have had such a, played a big cultural role in the life of the nation, setting an example, you know, standing up for things. The knee, for example, is a, is a good example. He's, a, he's an, a, you know, an intensely civilised as well as an intelligent man. So he's had this huge effect, I think, on the game off the pitch. But, of course, he'll be judged in the end by the decisions he takes on it. He's a pragmatist, he's a realist. There's a, there is a touch of romance in there in the sense that he wants to unleash all these wonderful, gifted, young attacking players. But what he's doing, or what he has done, is to set the team up with a solid base. And I think he's, he's, he's trying to be intensely logical and, and managing with his head rather than his heart. And so far, it's working because, of course, we all knew that the, coming into the tournament, the anxiety was around the back of the team. You know, was Jordan Pickford good enough to win you a tournament in goal while well, he's playing brilliantly? Were the centre-backs vulnerable? Well, maybe they were, but Southgate's put these two defensive shielding midfielders in place and the result has been, you know, four clean sheets and a really solid base to the side. So some of the fans don't like it. They think they think in the old style that England should be blowing teams away by sending on, you know, seven attacking players, but actually Southgate is being much more rational than that. And he's starting to win people over, I think.
2: Yeah, what strikes me is the modernity of the whole process. You know, they've obviously done a lot of analytical work uh, in the build up to the tournament. And that analysis suggests that clean sheets are the key in tournament football. If you look back, France had four clean sheets on the way to winning the World Cup in 2018, I think, against Peru, Denmark, Uruguay, and Belgium. Portugal also had four. In winning the Euros in twenty sixteen. Glenn, Alf Ramsey had his wingless wonders. Is this group Southgate's data drivers?
0: Yeah, I did see some sniping on social media about this, and this is a bit obvious. If you don't concede, you can't lose except in a shootout, which we now call win occasionally. And I suppose it does it's basic principles in that you know, it's the old adage in lots of sports that you know backs the defenders win you matches, forwards decide by how many. Or you could substitute that for batsmen and bowlers, bowlers winning matches and batsmen by how many in cricket. I think that has changed to an extent, certainly in cricket with T20. But it is basically, if you don't concede, then you are always in the game. And you could argue with the attacking talent that we've got there's always a chance we're going to score. So it makes perfect sense. I mean, they're great for, you could argue, you know, let's have all these players on the pitch, let's have so on and Foden on and so on. But if you haven't got the ball, you can't score. And an awful lot of the game, vast majority of the game is spent without the ball for most players. Most players get about two minutes on the ball, yeah, at most, in any game. So there's 88 minutes of running around trying to stop the opposition or trying to find space and help your own team. So you need players who are going to be disciplined, who are going to be focused, who can get in the right positions most of the time. Yeah, if you're out of position... Then that creates a hole, and you can't, and teams are good enough to pick those up these days, and therefore you, you need that shape, you need that framework. And we're very lucky in having, you know, a lot of talented players who can exploit the opportunities when they come, and also a fantastic bench to change things. I mean, you look on the bench now, you know, after an hour, and you're thinking there's lots of possibilities here, which wasn't the case in England teams in the past.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point because if you think about it, probably England have got the best depth on the bench of probably any team remaining in this tournament. How important is that, Paul, given particularly the length and intensity of the last season at club level?
1: Oh, hugely. And I agree that this is the strongest bench, the the greatest depth I've seen in an England squad. And it's going to come into its own now in in these later stages of the tournament because Gareth Southgate not only has lots of options to manage games, to change games, and this is the hard part, I think, for a lot of people to to grasp is that even if he starts off with a conservative setup, he can he's got no end of choices to change things as the game develops. But, you know, which other country is going into the um, quarterfinals with all this talent backed up, really? Players who, haven't, who, aren't, who aren't fatigued, young players, young attacking players who aren't fatigued, haven't been overused and it's an array of strength and an array of fresh legs and fresh energy that England are going to be able to bring to these knockout these later knockout stages which I don't think other uh, the countries can do because you know a lot of them will be at full throttle across the squad throughout the tournament the hard part for gareth southgate is going to be knowing you know which of those players can do the job for him because it's not entirely clear what his best starting 11 is but what we do know is that he's got a he's got a huge depth of, of resources at his disposal
2: Yeah you tend in, in tournaments don't you Glenn to get a almost like a bolter within a group do you think Bukayo Saka fulfils that role this time around, do you think he might even have overtaken Phil Foden in the uh, in the pecking order
0: You do, the most famous example has been called Jeff Hurst who didn't play to the quarterfinal and David Platt in um, 1990 he's had a trem- tremendous season for Arsenal watched quite a lot of Arsenal this year and he sort of held, a, you know, for a young guy, he basically sort of held a very average team until the later stages together along him and uh, Smith-Rowe. And he just stepped into the national team as if, like a lot of young players do, without fear, without worrying about the consequences. It will be, I mean, I think the, the Czech game was a good horses-for-courses selection in that he was up against a defender who he'd absolutely taken apart part in the Europa League and therefore, you know, very confident the other guy wasn't. Then, having played so well, you keep him in the team. it be interesting what Gav does this time, because obviously, you know, Mount's now back available, Foden's in, you know, the, the game... Against Germany, would take an awful lot out of the players physically and also emotionally. So it may be a case that maybe you do leave him out and for, from the start and, and use him later on, or maybe you start with him with a view that you get an hour out of him. Yeah, you know, I guess yeah, the person who is best placed to judge how these players are shaping up now in training and how they how they've come down from the experience against Germany is Southgate. And yeah, you know, I I faith that he'll make the right choices. To be honest, based on what he's been doing so far. Yeah, but certainly, I mean, for a guy who was. A borderline selection to get into the squad. If there'd been twenty-three players, probably wouldn't have got into the squad. He's now emerging as potentially a key player.
2: Yeah, you talked about faith there. That again is one of the almost like the, the the current themes within this group. It's almost there's a there's a dependence on basic trust. You know, with the greatest win in the world, Harry Kane, for me at least, still fails the eye test. He looks a, he looks a yard off. Yet no one can argue with the end product. And Gareth Southgate there has basically backed his man, hasn't he, Paul?
1: Yeah. I mean, it took Harry Kane until five minutes from the end of the fourth game to score his first goal. That's a lot of leeway, actually, given that he's looked so sluggish in games as well. It's not as if he was playing well and not scoring. He was playing poorly by his standards because he looked so... He looked so fatigued or, or sluggish or something, as you say, as you say, Mike, a, a yard off. So he's been given special dispensation. Let's, you know, let's not hide that fact. I think it's all, it was also noticeable that, that, that England were almost getting round the problem of his average form by just kind of almost pretending he wasn't there. If you notice, the ball wasn't going through him and to him. It was as if the players were, were saying, well, let's just forget about Harry for a while and let's just hope he he gets a goal and it will all change. He'd become, you know, peripheral. And had he not scored against Germany, it would have been very hard to make a case for him starting in this quarter final because four, doesn't matter how good you are and what your goal-scoring record is, four games in a tournament where you're not contributing and you haven't scored is going to make you vulnerable to a change. So that goal for Kane changed everything. That goal for Gareth Southgate changed everything as well because it completely removed the pressure to do something about the problem of Harry Kane.
0: Also, I mean, talk of act of faith, not having Calvert-Lewin on the bench was very much an act of faith in Kane. You know, your obvious replacement is not even on the bench, therefore, yeah, you will get the game. I think it, very, it was interesting that as the game changed slightly when England went ahead, he came a bit more involved because England became a slightly more reactive team and he's able to drop deep and release people like he does for Spurs to an extent. And you could argue because of his reputation overseas, he does tie up opposition defences in terms of attention. But yeah, certainly he, he, had, he had looked off the pace Until now, over that goal liberate, as it
2: did Sherry in 96. Yeah, very much so. I suppose also that that faith, that article of faith, is is also underlined by the continual selection of Raheem Sterling, who's you know been hugely effective. You know, we can look at the the hypocrisy of certain front pages in that sort of post-Germany bliss. He has been undervalued at club level, hasn't he, Paul? And if you agree with me, does that almost highlight a weakness of Guardiola's approach, i.e. man management?
1: Possibly, although at all the times I watched him last year for Manchester City, I felt, certainly in the second half of the season, that he was struggling. I thought the, the ball was bouncing off him a bit. He'd lost his kind of composure. He was slightly less clinical and... I I th- I think I can understand why Guardiola became impatient with him and you know he started in the Champions League final and was was taken off and and looked a bit forlorn by the end of that. So I think it's testament to his character really that he's turned up in the England camp and got himself going again. He's found his form. His his work rate has been phenomenal. Apart from the goals he's scoring, he is the player who's 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 pressing from the front and getting through the the miles and the workload to help the team. I think his, his attitude has been exemplary. And as I say, it's very hard for a player who's not informed with his club to come into a tournament and suddenly find that spark again. But he's found that, he's found that inspiration, he's found that kind of focus and commitment and he's been absolutely critical to England getting this far.
0: so You do sometimes get a situation where people come from a club environment and they're not entirely happy into an environment where they are happy like the England team and that sort of gives them a sense of freedom and and rebuilds their confidence and we see that a lot in other, some of the, what you might term with respect weaker uh, nations in this tournament like say Switzerland or Ukraine where players who are not necessarily playing a lot of high level club football are playing way above themselves above their regular team that's comfortable You could even say granite Xhaka at and has been a revelation. But it's much harder harder
1: though, isn't it, when you've got all that scepticism on top of you because Sterling's got a history of, you know, England fans being sceptical and and critical of him. And so if you come into the camp and you feel you're going to have to face that again, it's probably much harder to lift yourself. So I I just think he's done really well.
2: Yeah, you mentioned the fans there. Glenn, obviously there are unlikely to be many in Italy on Saturday... So maybe this is an issue that that should be addressed for a potential semi final or final at Wembley. It was fantastic. The scenes against Germany were fantastic. Limbs, I think, is the is the vogue word about it. You know, people had <laughs> lost. They just lost their. They lost themselves in the, in the moment, which was fantastic to see. However, and you know, okay, you can say I'm a curmudgeon here, but what about booing the the opponent's national anthem? Isn't that well, it's crass, but isn't it also counterproductive?
0: I would have thought so. I mean, if you're standing there and they're booing your national anthem, I mean, particularly if you're Ukraine, which is a very nationalistically charged, given the circumstances at home, campaign, I mean, they're wearing the, the the whole ad on the map on their shirts, aren't they? So I would say, yes, it doesn't make any sense. I'm sure the our players aren't particularly keen about it. I mean, they've been... Yeah, the, the FA and, and the players have said don't do it many times and I think gradually it will decline. Hopefully, depending who we play at the semi-final, it won't be as obvious. I mean, Germany is a, a bit of a special case for all sorts of uh, historical reasons, which we really should get over by now. But, yeah, it, I, I can't see upon point it. It just, yeah, yeah. If they did it to us, we'd be annoyed. And our players are like, well, well, we'll show you. So why do it?
2: Yeah, tend to agree with that. When we're looking at Ukraine, Paul, we can't, avoid the bigger picture the political picture and that because it is such a charged issue for them in terms of you know the, the national team being a symbol of national identity but when you analyze this team dispassionately they're almost pretty perfect opponents aren't they frankly they looked absolutely shattered at the end of of, of their win in this last 16
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, to, to go widescreen for a minute, they've got, you know, they're, they're a sort of a battleground between East and West, you know, and they've got they've got they've got Russia and Putin on their border with a mortal threat hanging over them constantly a threat to their existence. So England can't say that about themselves, that's for sure. But so presumably for Ukrainian people, the success of this team is is quite an, an enjoyable kind of outlet and they've got a national hero in charge, in Shevchenko, of course. On the pitch, their their record in this tournament just doesn't compare to England's. They lost to the Netherlands and Austria. They beat North Macedonia in the group, but they conceded five goals in the group stage. England, as we know, conceded none. They've, they've really toiled their way through to a quarterfinal, to the last day. They needed 120 minutes to beat Sweden, and we know how hard it is to beat Sweden. So what they have, they have... Technical ability, as all Eastern European countries have, and they have team spirit. They have a, they have a superstar manager, and they have a mission. And I think what makes it dangerous for England is the fact that it's their first away game in Rome. They've 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 been in a comfort zone a little bit at Wembley. And although you know, if you line the two teams up, you'd you'd make Ukraine big outsiders. Nonetheless, they are dangerous because they score. From nowhere, and they're going to be intensely driven. So, uh, I do think England will win, but I think it might be you know, a little bit more difficult than, than we might assume. And complacency actually is perhaps one of the risks for Gareth Southgate. He has to stop his players being complacent when they look across the pitch and see players who they think they can beat.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, is it only one clean sheet in the last 16 competitive internationals? And as you say, Paul, in contrast to England, that. If you look at that opposition, Glenn, I suppose two names stand out because of familiarity more than anything else. Zinchenko, who's probably emerging as a bit of a quiet achiever at Manchester City, and Yarmolenko, who's their captain, but still an enigma, isn't he, at West Ham?
0: Yeah, Zinchenko has been very good in the tournament, hasn't he? Playing, um, in, uh, been quite influential player. I mean, you, you can tell how good a player is, the fact, he holds that place at City, which is not, not easy, as we've been discussing with Sterling. I'm slightly concerned about this game in that Sweden have always been hard opponents for England, obdurate opponents, but you tend to know what you're going to get to a large extent, except for maybe the odd player like Ibrahimovic. Whereas Ukraine, I think, I think that yeah, they will concede goals, but they're also capable of scoring goals. And Yarmolenko has a habit of putting out the occasional outstanding goal, as you say, out, out of nowhere. I mean, so they they are a threat. They're capable of mercurial brilliance. I mean, they scored, you know, that, that little patch when they scored twice against the Dutch showed how good they could be. So it's, it's something to be wary of. It could be a game that goes quite deep before England get control when the fatigue starts to have an effect on Ukraine. A bit like the Murray match last night when his opponent was worn down in the end, having played so much the previous day. <laughs> you know, and it, it could be one of those games where... That we have to be patient and maybe in that respect playing not playing at Wembley might help because it it might be nil-nil after 70 minutes and instead of a crowd getting your back you know it looks like there's going to be a lot more Ukrainian fans there and then the substitutes come on against a tiring defence and a tiring midfield and then we break them down so it could be an occasion where stock up and wait and be patient
2: Yeah because I suppose what does work in their favour is is almost the the puzzle that Gareth Southgate has to solve in terms of you know, does he protect, he's got four players on yellow cards, does he protect them? Are there any, you know, ongoing injuries that he has to sort out? Would you expect, Paul, England to be a, a slightly changed team in this game?
1: Yes, I would. And that's probably the equation he's working with, you know. Do, does he Does he freshen the team up and risk unsettling it? Or does he stick? I don't think he'll play the team he played against. Germany, that's for sure. I mean, for starters, you know, he switched to a a back three, almost a back five. As we know, he played 3-4-3 to to match the German formation. I don't think he'll need to do that against Ukraine. You can't imagine him playing five defenders in Rome. I I couldn't see any need for that, really. So there'll be a a tweaking there, I think. And, And again, he's got to look at the players on yellow cards. He's got to look at the players who've played a lot of minutes and, you know, decide whether this is the game to give them a bit of a rest, but but he can't rest too many if resting people means the team looks and feels unfamiliar on the pitch. It's a, you know, I, I, just, I just can't remember an England manager having so many options, really, going into a quarter-final. Yeah,
2: and I suppose also I can't remember an England manager probably being given as much leeway as he has uh, by the media. You know, OK, you said after the Germany game, you know, I don't win, I'm dead. But there is a degree of leeway given to him, isn't there, Glenn? And that does contrast to some of the situations that we've found ourselves in in the past.
0: Yes. I mean, I think there's there's no hiding he's made a conscious effort to um, get on with the media and to bring the players and the media together. It's much harder to be critical of someone after you've been playing darts with them mm-hmm. than when they're just you know, constantly in Ivy Tower when you're barred entry. So I think there is an element of that. Obviously, he used to work for a while for ITV, travelling with the media camp, so he knows one or two people personally and also he's seen it from this side of the fence. So there has been certainly an effort and that does pay off to an extent. People are likely to be a bit more tolerant. However, it does eventually come down to results. And and his results have been good. You know, he's made a World Cup semi-final. He's made the uh, nation league semi-final, and indeed, you know, but for Lingard being totally offside, would have been the final. And now they're doing well in this tournament. So, you know, Graham Taylor made an effort with the press. I remember of all the managers that I covered, he was probably the most helpful. But when the results go badly, that that doesn't that doesn't save you. And you know, Gav will be aware of that. He, you know, as a player, he's seen. You know, he saw Kevin Keegan's meltdown. He would have been there under Tave Venables, who had, obviously had um, some criticism in the media. So it does eventually come down to results. But what he has been very good at in the past, there has been a sense of when you get criticism, sort of circling the wagons and us against them thing. You know, Venables did that particularly successfully after the uh, dentist chair. He, he hasn't resorted to that at any stage, even in difficult times. I mean, maybe in private conversations with one or two players, like, say, Sterling, you know, go and prove them. Prove, you yeah. Know, don't worry about the media. I think Raheem's got a... Sense of self that he doesn't need that much advice in that respect, but he's been he's been he's been good with us. Yeah, we've been good with him, but basically it comes down to results. And the moment they're winning,
2: yeah. And I suppose well, we don't need too much invitation to actually give the FA a kicking now and again, do we, Paul? To be perfectly honest, do you think this tournament is the justification of that oft derided? england dna philosophy there is something deeper than just
1: a team turning
2: up at a tournament
1: oh definitely Uh, this this is um it's a vindication well partly for the the premier league academies obviously these players are coming out of premier league academies that's where they're produced so that's the bedrock of it but at the same time the england system is now after decades of Promises that this would happen when it didn't. Finally, the the, F, the FA has a system in place at St George's Park, and with the, the with the with the document laid down by Dan Ashworth and others, the England DNA program, it has a coherent manifesto for the way these teams play and the way they connect, the way players go through this system, this development system, from the lower ages through to the senior team. And Gareth Southgate now has a a group of players who predominantly come through this this effective, coherent FA development system. So, as it, it, you know, behind what we're seeing, I think, on the pitch in this tournament, we're also seeing basis of a, of a longer-term success, potentially. You know, the, the, the type of success you see in France after Clairefontaine and Germany after Das Reboot in, after the year 2000. So, if England are kind of on that track, it's, it's it's very promising for the long term. In the end, it's going to depend, of course, on the big Premier League clubs continuing to produce players of the quality that they're currently sending into the England camp.
0: Yeah, and if you look at it, I mean, several of these players, uh, one thing like the FA did do about 10 years ago, started pushing clubs to release players for tournaments, Yeah, you know, under 17, under 19, under 21. And England have been much more successful at those tournaments in the last 10 years than before. So people like Foden, like Calvert-Lewin, like Pickford, that they've tasted success... In those young age groups, they're aware of what tournament football requires. They're, they go into these situations with much more confidence than the, the generation would have done in the past, and that's something that other countries, you know, had uh, Italy and Spain in particular, done, and France have done very well. Yeah, so now these players are coming to an international tournament. Yeah, even for the players, who it's their first tournament. Like Foden, he's been in big tournaments in the past and he's won them. Yeah, he was in the team that won the Under seventeen World Cup in twenty seventeen. Mm. So that's why that, that it has been a long term process.
2: Yeah. Uh, let's let's commit the cardinal sin if we could of of looking beyond you know the next match, basically to a potential semi final. If we're talking about bigger causes, uh, which we did with Ukraine in a political sense, you've got a human case in Denmark where you know they're obviously galvanised by the misfortune of, of Christian Eriksson. Do you see shades of 1992 here, Paul? And are they likely to have too much for the Czech Republic?
1: Yeah, a little bit. I mean, uh, the Christian Eriksson incident seems a long time ago now, but it, it really set the tone for this tournament, didn't it? It it, it, it introduced a kind of a, a human element to the whole thing. And Denmark have, bizarrely you might say, been able to kind of ride this Wave of emotion ever since it, it, it sort of gave us kind of meaning to what they're trying to achieve here. They're trying to, trying to you know go deep into the tournament for but for him, but also something kind of more universal. So people are looking very warmly on Denmark and the players have have really risen to it and and, and excelled themselves. You know you, we are seeing. Countries in that group at this tournament excel themselves, aren't we? Even the kind of Austria and Switzerland, Czech Republic, they, they've they've kind of surpassed themselves in many ways. But Denmark, I'd say, are the standard bearers for that now because they have the Ericsson story to 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 live off and live with. But they're also an extremely good team who started to play very quick, technical, dangerous football. So. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to think. It's like a lopsided Wimbledon draw. You've got Belgium, Italy, Spain and Switzerland in one half of the group. And you've got England, Ukraine, the Czech Republic and Denmark in the other, which is why we're, we're thinking it's an easier route than normal. Not easier, that's a silly word, but, you know, less <laughs> daunting road to the final for England than it's been perhaps in the past. But certainly, Mike, to answer your question, there's a magnetism about Denmark now because of the Ericsson story and also because of the way they're playing.
0: Yeah, they've got a good spine about them, haven't they? It's Michael, Kieran, Christensen, Hoiberg. Yeah, yeah, they've got one. Uh, Damsgar's been a, a useful looking player. highlight has been sensational. And I do remember, look at the uh, the two halves of the draw. We thought we had a very easy half of the draw back in um, the Russia World Cup and didn't get to the final when all the big teams were in the other half of the draw.
2: Yeah, but we have seen the Czech Republic, haven't we, Glenn? You know what was your analysis of them in their defeat by England?
0: Well, they're obviously getting better. We've been 5-0 at no, uh, home at Wembley in the qualifying. They've got a very good striker who's in form, Stick, I'm not quite sure I've pronounced that correctly. And they're, they're well organised. You would imagine that England would fancy playing them at Wembley in the semi-final to get into a final, having already beaten them twice in the last few years at Wembley. What was interesting about the game that we played them was that they didn't really come out very much. I mean, England criticised as being fairly sterile, but England didn't need to. We haven't got the goal early on. England didn't need to push in any harder. And the Czechs seem quite happy to settle for what they had rather than overcommit and affect their goal difference. So it, w- it wasn't really an indication. I mean, they did beat England in Prague in qualifying, I seem to recall. So they are quite capable of playing well and putting us under pressure. So but you would you would assume you would expect England to beat the Czech Republic most games. But then again you would expect France to beat Switzerland most games.
1: If they do um, play the Czech Republic, guys, Southgate will be able to say you've beaten them once, now go out and beat them again.
2: <laughs> Hopefully, not at the end of extra time. Oh, but sorry, the start of extra time. <laughs> yeah. You know, d- domestic bias aside, Paul, you know, if you're looking objectively at this tournament, is the winner likely to come from the Belgium Italy quarterfinal on Friday night in Munich?
1: Yes. If it were Belgium or Italy in the final, I, I think they would be uh, favourites just marginally assuming they carry on playing the way they have. If it was Spain, I think, and say England were in the other half, of the, you know, with the other team in the final, I think England would be favourites. But, but to me, Belgium and Italy are still the two most formidable teams, potential opponents in this tournament. Although England, with that Germany performance, I think are, are catching them quite fast.
2: Yeah, when you look at it, Belgium in particular there's been almost like the brutalisation of kevin de bruyne and that conforms to a to a pattern in big tournaments isn't it pele in 66 cruyff 74 you know maradona meeting claudio gentile in 1982 Do players like that glenn deserve greater protection
0: they do i mean i would say the situation is vastly improved to pre 1990 and when Marco van Basten was kicked out and injured so early and and what Maradona had to put up with. I mean, players like Messi and Ronaldo can operate with nowhere near the amount of brutality that they used to get. De Bruyne has been slightly unfortunate. I mean, the Champions League final, for example, I mean, that probably wasn't punished as much as it should have been. Rudiger has clattered into one or two players recently, and they would tend to be good players. Coincidentally, yeah, I mean it's, it's difficult. You sort of sometimes you you judge the severity of the offence on the severity of the injury, uh, which it should be. It shouldn't really be judged on that. It should be judged on you know the the offence rather than yeah the consequences up to a point. I mean the, the sending off the might be a good case in point. There is a lot more protection than there used to be. I think the ref being refereeing this tournament has generally been very good. However we look at this partly from an English perspective and I feel it's we think it's been very good January because it has let the game flow quite a lot more than we used to see it in say the Champions League. And there have been some challenges that have been let go that we're used to being seeing pulled up in Europe. Which is interesting. It's obviously been a directive and it's made for a better spectacle. It has meant there has been one or two crunching challenges that maybe yeah, you wouldn't have got away in Champions League games, which is where most of these players tend to face each other, which is interesting. But yeah, you would hope that he's, he's fully fit. We wait to see. The only issue in terms of playing those teams, I don't think Belgium particularly quick at the back. England might fancy that aspect of it. Yeah, Italy very well organised. You, you, again, you know, getting back to Paul, I think you'd make either of them favourites, but it'd be by no means a sure thing. Of course, whoever gets the final would be absolutely full of confidence.
2: Yeah, with that Italian team, Paul, you know, you can see familiar strengths, but they are playing with more freedom, aren't they?
1: Yeah, they're certainly playing with more pace and energy as well. You know, they've got they've got Mancini's style of management all over them, haven't they? And I thought it was no surprise to see them struggle in their round of 16 game. I think they'd probably maybe run out of energy by then, and it was much more of a struggle for them. It's an intense style. It's a high pressing style. It's it, and that's not what we associate Italian football with. You know, to some extent, he's had to reinvent the team and reinvent some of these players to get them to work much faster and harder than they're accustomed to working in in Syria, are, where the where the pace is slight tends to be slightly slower. So it's an interesting reinvention of the Italy team, and and so far, you know, when they're good, they look irresistible. But I think to be good, they have to maintain. That work rate, which is hard, because I don't think they've they've quite got the, the kind of gold standard of individual player, really, to be obvious champions. But as a collective, they're, they're, they're really, really, really
0: uh, impressive. Mm. One, one thing to pick up on there as well, in terms of the, the work rate of some of these teams, We've been slightly shielded from this because it's been so miserable here, but there's been a heatwave in Central Europe. Mm. You see, Matt, the games where there's been a break for water breaks, stuff like that. I mean, uh, Rome, the forecast on um, Saturday, is 33 degrees. Admittedly, it'd be cooler by 8 o'clock in the evening, down to about the high 20s. So in that respect, those teams that have been playing in this heat, and I mean, Budapest particularly has been very hot, and Munich would have it would have taken a lot more out of them. In terms of recovery, uh, mm. when you've been running around like that, and England have been quite lucky in that we've been playing in cloudy old London for most of the tournament, and Rome might be a bit of a shock to us in that respect. True.
2: Yeah, you you mentioned Paul Mancini there, Roberto Martinez as well. You know, I think there've been some frankly bizarre managerial appointments this week. You know, at Tottenham and and, and Everton, I was quite surprised because I thought. Spurs in particular, might wait for one of those twos to become available at the end of this tournament. What about
1: you? Yeah, well, Roberto Martinez left Premier League management with this accusation hanging hanging over him, didn't he, that basically he knows how to set a team up to attack, but in the end, uh, defensively, all his teams just disintegrate, and and quite a few of his teams did disintegrate defensively in the uh, Premier League. Then he goes to manage... um, Belgium where he's got this hesitate to use the phrase, but you know, golden generation of players and it's and it and it's a totally different challenge, isn't it? it it's it's about fulfilling the potential of a wonderful crop of, of homegrown Belgian Belgian players. So that was a very different challenge difficult challenge and, and he's he's done it he's done it pretty well, hasn't he? The question is, has that improved him or made him more suitable to manage in the Premier League? Would he have the balance in his approach between attacking and defending uh, and could he come back and take over a big Premier League club and be successful is pretty much impossible to know, but I suspect that there'd be a lot of clubs that wouldn't necessarily take that gamble.
2: Yeah, Glenn, we've got the 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 first quarter final in St Petersburg on Friday evening, Spain Switzerland. Let's speak about the Swiss. You've already said you know you've already already wondered who you know who is this granite jacker who's been playing for Arsenal because he, he, his twin brother's doing really well at international level. Is it also reward for stability in terms of coaching? I I find Vladimir Petrovic's really a fascinating character. Okay, he's been in charge since 2016, but his background is really significant or certainly distinctive. He's a social worker by trade. That's a really interesting element in a modern world where empathetic management is actually coming to the fore.
0: Yes, most unusual. It chimes a little bit with a, a lot of uh, top coaches that have been teachers in the past, which requires a certain amount of uh, those those skills, but also, obviously, the, the ability to educate. I mean, um, you know, from Mikels, Roxburgh, Brown, you know, quite a lot of coaches have been teachers. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? I mean, they've, they've done well. They've been consistent with him. You know, they've been, compared to the changes elsewhere, and he does seem to have been getting performances from players out of the ordinary. I mean... One of the things I think in watching this over there, and particularly this tournament, I mean, as these tournaments get bigger, it gets harder for the smaller teams to, to go through in the way that Denmark did and Greece did, because there was more games, and it tests the depth of sides more, where the, obviously the bigger countries have more, have more players. But at this level, almost all the players... Are very very good players, yeah, even in in what we might regard as a smaller nations. What what marks out the, the truly great players and the very good players is being able to play at a very very high level week after week after week, yeah. And that's why they end up playing for the Manchester Cities, the Real Madrids, the Bayern Munichs. But quite a lot of players are capable of playing really well for like a handful of games if they're in form. I mean, you have to look at you know the, the, when a non league team pushes a Premier League team. I mean, the, the difference is they can't do it regularly. So most of the teams, if you can get. A high level performance just for a few weeks. Greece would be the outstanding example in two thousand and four. You know, a whole load of German players who did very little before, very little afterwards. But for uh, for about a month, they came good, and they had a very well organized side, and they were and they, they were uh, underestimated, and they were to break teams down. I remember with well, Charis wasn't the striker, you know, and, uh, scoring mm. goals, and Dallas uh, was a Sheffield United reserve at the back. So it's possible you can get the right environment around your players, and you, you can bring them. To perform basically at their best every game for a month, you know, it's surprising what these teams can do. And the way the Swiss came back against France when they looked dead and buried was was incredible. Um, You're know, watching that game, you just could not see them getting back into the game, and that just shows a huge amount of depth of character and belief within the team to, to do that.
2: That was one of the great nights of football, wasn't it? Those two games together, and obviously with Spain, are they are they sleepers, Paul? Because you know they're obviously conscious that they're fortunate to have another chance after losing that lead to Croatia.
1: Yeah, they they are interesting because in their first two games against uh, Poland and Sweden, they were very slow and ponderous, and they, they were they were circulating the ball endlessly in the middle of the pitch. And you know, you you it was very odd watching them. I mean, Luis Enrique's squad selection was controversial, and. um It looked as if they'd come to the tournament just to pass the the ball around endlessly, you know, with no penetration, no incisiveness, no kind of enterprise. And then after those two games, they were kind of shaken out of that syndrome. They were playing in a trance almost, really, and they walloped Slovakia 5-0 and scored five against Croatia. So they went from a team who looked like they were never going to score to a team who scored ten in two games. And as we know, the the talent in, in Spanish football and in that squad is... You know, there's enough talent there for, uh, for, for, for them to be dangerous if, if they suddenly come alive and catch fire. And, and, and maybe they have. I, I, still think, I still think they're a notch or two below the great Spain teams that we've seen in, in recent years. You know, the teams of Viniesta and um, Xavi and all those great players. Um, Spain are not at that level, even at their best in this tournament. But they've certainly, they've certainly woken up, that's for sure. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't rush to play them.
2: Yeah, I've been hugely impressed by Pedri. You know that weird own goal uh, with Unai Simón aside. He, you know, to me, he, at 18, he can do anything he wants in in football, world football. I suppose the broader issue, Glenn, is has this tournament highlighted the myth of the marquee player? I'm thinking of Kylian Mbappe here. You know, he obviously didn't make the impact his reputation demanded, did he?
0: No, it, it, it didn't. I mean, compared to the World Cup, I mean, Pogba was brilliant going forward, certainly. Uh, I think it comes back, it's it's not easy for even players of that level to, to, to sort of dominate a, a tournament that's so short. I mean, they're, they're marquee players because they play well week after week after week, Yeah, you know, and you're guaranteed a high level of 9 out of 10 performance if you buy them, whereas in a short period... It does sound, you know, it, uh, as always, when things go wrong, stories start to come out. It does sound like the French camp wasn't a particularly happy one with lots of off-field family issues and disputes between them. That that never helps. So as a marquee but there is a vacancy, isn't there? I mean, Messi's obviously on the wrong side of, of 30. He's still a great player. Ronaldo was, by some distance, Portugal's most decisive player, but couldn't drag them through this time. And Mbappe is still developing as a player, despite what he's achieved already. There is a there is a bit of a... Vac- Lewandowski had a poor team around him, so clear it was clear was So there is a vacancy within Europe for that player. And I don't think we're going to see it come kind out of like this tournament, unless you know, maybe Sterling gets the hat-trick in the final. I mean, um, <laughs> there, is a, there is a vacancy that could be filled by an English player. Uh, yeah, I think, was it Rio? It was obviously got slightly vested interest, saying he's up there with all those players. Yes. It's, you, you thought in some respects that those individual players in international football would be more dominant because international football is put together by managers on the hoof to an extent. Therefore, the individual talent should be a shine more than organised talent. But it hasn't quite worked out like that. Pedri, mm.
1: I think, is the one, Mike, isn't he? He, he, um, yeah. he looks like the next sort of creative maestro, really. He's a lovely player and has... As Gary Lineker pointed out in a tweet, you know, if if Messi's passing the ball all the time to you, you must be good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think we'll ever experience that, mate. Don't worry.
2: Um, I suppose on a broader issue, Paul Yogi Love, you know, we're in a time of inquests now, aren't we? Uh, mm. Yogi Love was given a pretty dignified send off by the German media. With Germany entering transition, are we now in a new era in Europe?
1: yeah I think so uh, the, the tournaments have cycles reign's end. managers go. I think Germany particularly are ready for the end of the Yogi low era and Hansi flick I would expect him to have a dramatic impact on this German team, these German players i mean for example if you if you if you want to pick holes in what was what 's been a wonderful career for yogi low i mean i 'll never forget that German World Cup winning side to go and win a World Cup in South America, the first European country to do so beat Brazil 7-1, beat Argentina in the final. That was an incredible achievement. But to me, his 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 time had, had, has gone. And I'll give you an example. I think to start Werner against England at Wembley was just a gift to Gareth Southgate. I mean, psychologically, Werner is shot to pieces, I think, in front of goal. To have Nabri and Sané on the bench, and, I, and Sané hasn't been playing particularly well, but Nabri has. And to put Nabry on the bench and start with Werner, to me, was a was a sign that Lowe's just not really in control of the story anymore. That was a, a really bad misjudgment. But I, I, I wouldn't underestimate Flick. I think, I think Flick will be able to regenerate them quite quickly.
2: Yeah. Well, I think old certainties are, are no longer relevant, are they? I suppose, finally, chaps, it's something we can't avoid. What used to be known as the $64,000 question before inflation took over. <laughs> How far do you think England will go in this tournament? Basically, Glenn, what I'm asking is, can they win it?
0: They can win it. Most of the teams left in it can win it. Why tip France and Portugal at the start? So I'm probably not the best person to ask. (laughs) I did have have Denmark as a dark horse, on the assumption that Ericsson would be outstanding. Um, uh, They can win it. I would expect them to get to the final, though I don't think it's going to be necessarily as easy as some people anticipate. But then when they get there, it might be quite difficult if they play Italy or Belgium in particular. But once you get to the final, Wembley, 90,000 people. Well, there's going to be quite a lot of people anyway. Not quite sure what the capacity will be. Plenty of VIPs from UEFA. A lot of confidence, You know, young, fresh players. It's possible. It's possible. But we've all been there too often and too long to make any rash rash predictions. I would say in ought order to get to the final, and in the context of what's happened in the last... 50 years, that would be an achievement in itself. But having to get there, of course, obviously you want to try and win it. Yeah.
1: Dare to dream, Paul? Yeah, I think there should be Ukraine. I, I, I would fancy them to beat the Czech Republic. Denmark would be more difficult as a semi-final opponent. and then So I can quite easily see England in the final against Belgium or Italy. I, I'd, I'd be... I'd be pretty careful on that one. I certainly wouldn't I certainly wouldn't have England as favourites, but as everybody keeps saying, you know, when can you last remember England having a better chance to win a, a trophy? So it's all in their hands. I mean, you know, the home games as well, it's, it's like 1966 with one away game, isn't it? And as Glenn said, you're playing at home for six of your seven games potentially in a, in a bad summer where it's quite cool and... um you know, uh, sort of conducive to English football. So, uh, my God, it's just staring them in the face, isn't it?
2: It is. And, you know, I must admit, I don't think I've ever known an England team that's more likeable. You know, know, I'll be honest here, and, and, you know, I know this probably won't sound very good, but I used to find covering England a bit of a chore. You know, the mood was unwelcoming, sour. Some of the managers were opportunists. There was a bit of a disconnect between players and fans. Now, it feels so different today, doesn't it? This is the first England team for a generation, I think, in which we can feel genuine pride. No politician has matched Gareth Southgate's moral leadership or the social conscience shown by Marcus Rashford, Raheem Sterling, Jordan Henderson and other members of that England squad. They represent the best of us. I hope you agree. Thanks in the meantime... To Paul and Glenn for their insight. And to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Enjoy the game.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.